What's up, everybody? Not my house is in the house. This is your host, Eric, and right next to me always is my co-host, Zach. Zach, what's going on this morning, my friend? I'm just getting ready for 4th of July, man. So I'm in vacation mode, but I'm really excited to talk some hoops today. So I'm just ready to get to it. You and me both, man. I'm, I'm on vacation mode, too, here in a couple of days. And uh, we got a really cool guest today. He's a former Division One player who played at Cal Poly and Mercer. He's had some really interesting experiences as a player that involves some of our former guests. So we're really excited to have him on to hear what's going on. Mr. Chris Ott, how are you doing this morning, my friend? Hey, folks. I'm doing great. Like y'all, I am ready for vacation. We are heading down to the beach come Saturday. Uh, and I'm in Richmond, Virginia, so that means we're heading down to the Outer Banks. Should be fun. Right on, man. Very cool. Yeah, I'm heading to the beach, too. I'm going to uh, Newport. So oh. it'll, be, it'll be nice to get like, out of this hot weather. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's been something else. But it were, and because we're in the south, we're supposed to get thunderstorms coming through now, too. So it'll okay. be a little dicey here for a couple of days. And lots of humidity, right? That's the way it goes. Tough for a kid who grew up in Los Angeles, but yeah, that is the way it goes. Absolutely. So um, I'm curious, we talked a little bit about this, but I always like to ask this question um, so our listeners know, because it knows how much it means to us. You know, you reached out to Zach. Thanks for being a listener to our show, but out of curiosity, how did you hear about us? Yeah. Uh, So I think I actually saw it on the Paul Shirley uh, Twitter feed, and it doesn't come across on uh, for the people who are just listening, but it also doesn't come across on Zoom. I'm very tall, uh, so I'm 6'11". I'm a white guy, so I've always kind of had an affinity for Paul. I uh, got a chance to meet him a couple of years ago, which is a you know brief uh, mention of celebrity there. Uh, but then I went in and I started listening to your old uh, your old pods, and was just kind of blown away by the folks uh, that you've had on. You've had some just fascinating guests, uh, folks who I saw when they were kids, somebody like Shea Cotton, and it's just really fun to hear y'all talk about them and your enthusiasm for the game so that's what led me to reach out to you awesome appreciate it and i just wanted to let our listeners know because we always thank them at the end of the show i'm going to thank them at the beginning of the show right now and say because of you guys and how you're sharing our social medias and and uh, giving us stars on on itunes and stuff like that we're getting great guests and and, and people finding us and asking to be on the show it's amazing so we just wanted to basically say thanks can you tell us a little bit about your background like where are you from like what was it like growing up there and what was your introduction to sports yeah. Yeah. So I'm um, born and raised in Los Angeles. Uh, we were in, my family was in Hollywood until I guess we were, tw- until I was about 12. Um, and we were not in the industry or the entertainment industry down there, but my folks just uh, moved from around the country. My dad's from Germany, or I'm sorry, around the world. My dad's from Germany and around the country. My mom's from Ohio. And as happens, people show up in LA and they never leave, right? The weather's perfect every single day and it's a great place to be. Um, so anyway, we were in Hollywood, then we moved over to a suburb called Glendale, uh, and I was there until, until I was 18, went to college. Um, I have always been really tall, kind of the, some of the other kind of funny basketball coincidences. Uh, elementary school, one of my classmates was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar Jr., uh, and you know was always taller than him as well. Didn't really start playing basketball until we got out to the Burbs, uh, so that was in probably around seventh or eighth grade. 
by that time I was probably like six, five. So it seemed like it was probably a good thing to start doing. Ended up being a good, not great, but I was a good basketball player. Love, absolutely loved doing it. Uh, and then after high school, went on to Cal Poly, which I think we'll dig into this, but I was at Cal Poly for two years. We were first year division one program in 94, 95. Uh, so played my freshman year, redshirted my sophomore, a year of junior college up in San Jose. Uh, and then after a year of junior college, out to Mercer, where I graduated uh, from undergrad, then to kind of round it out, then went on to law school at uh, Tulane, where I met the woman who's now my wife. After law school, uh, I went back to California, did a year of death penalty work before going out to D.C., where we spent about 10 years. And uh, anyway, we've bounced around a little bit since then, went to Kansas for five years, and then we've been in Richmond for about two. So I'm an attorney. Long story short, I play basketball, uh, but I, once my body gave out on me, I became an attorney. So, so you weren't you weren't the six five baseball player in the seventh grade then? <laughs> Absolutely not. No, I realized uh, I realized that basketball is where I was supposed to be. Uh, it, it's one of those funny things. Volleyball has become a much bigger thing, uh, but even being in Southern California, it wasn't something that I ever played. I really loved playing basketball, loved uh, the team aspect of it, uh, and just the competition. Uh, I thought it was a really, really fun sport. Still do. Yeah. Yeah. And it's big time over there in Southern California for sure. But uh, I want to ask about the high school scene because you played in LA, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. So, I mean, did you go up against any familiar names and what kind of player were you in high school? <laughs> yeah. It, familiar is going to be kind of a niche thing for anyone who's really digging in. Uh, I was very lucky uh, where I grew up, kind of the suburban area there. Um, we, there were some very good high school players who were around there, uh, but this was kind of the early to the nineties and th things have changed, right? I mean, like the AAU scene has taken off and I'm happy to touch on that. Um, but where I grew up, uh, the next city over Jacques Vaughn, who became, uh, you know, a legend for Kansas, he was playing there. Um, but then the high school league that I was in actually had uh, a few kids who we thought were guaranteed NBA players. It never panned out for them for whatever reason. Um, but in my high school league was a school, uh, I went to St. Francis, which is Catholic school up in uh, La Cunada, so a different part of LA. Uh, but in our league, there was one school, St. John Bosco, who was cranked up. They've kind of become an athlete factory in a pretty good way. Uh, but when I was there, they had Jelani Gardner, uh, who went on to Cal. Uh, and then after some kind of bizarre stuff about uh, paying players came out, he transferred back down to Pepperdine, uh, and he's stuck with the game. One of his teammates was James Cotton, uh, older brother of Shea Cotton. Uh, and James at least had a cup of coffee in the NBA. Uh, and then another kid who was in the league was Rick Price, uh, who uh, played at Duke. Uh, and again, he, there were some kind of strange things that happened there, but it seemed like he was a guaranteed NBA player. And uh, unfortunately, it just never panned out for him. Um, I, I was a, you know, I was a good player. I certainly wasn't great, but I was a 6'9", you know, a, probably was listed up to about seven feet tall, but I wasn't uh, that tall in high school. Kind of rail thin, so I was never any sort of power player, but I would say that I was a good to very good, not great athlete. Uh, unfortunately, probably my best skills were a mid-range jumper uh, and uh, offensive rebounding, neither of which are, uh, well, high post passes as well, none of which are going to get you to the NBA when you're uh, six, 11, seven feet. But I, I had a good time playing. Uh, and so in high school, we were in a very strong league. Uh, and we were a good team, not great. We bounced out or kind of flamed out of the uh, playoffs kind of early. Uh, but it was fun. I had a great time in high school. Uh, the AAU program that I played for uh, was called the LA Rockfish, uh, which is, I guess, their claim to fame. Uh, Austin Crozier, who ended up, he had a legit NBA career, oh, yeah. but he played for them. Austin was a year older than me. Um, but on my team, there were probably two guys. Uh, so Andre Miller, 
who I'm sure you all have heard of, uh, you know, had a real NBA career. He was just a kid from LA. Uh, and then all of a sudden he blew up, uh, you know, when uh, and then he ends up taking Utah to go to the championship or just the finals or just the final four. I can't appreciate sure his final four, about. if I remember right. Yeah. So anyway, Andre was on my team, uh, not anyone that I still keep up with in his career, obviously went far better than mine, uh, but he, he was a good one. Another kid who was on the team was uh, Rico Harris. Do you guys oh, yeah. get in that story yet? Okay. So Rico was, um, Rico was damn good. Uh, he was a phenomenal basketball player. Oh, yeah. uh, he played at a Temple City, which is a kind of small part of uh, LA. And then he ended up kind of becoming a Juco guy before having a little bit of time at the D1 level. Uh, and then his, he's kind of had some weird stuff happen. Um, Anyway, he kind of fell on some hard times, but there were some there were some really really good players who were uh, up at that time. Uh, and uh, Toby Bailey was another one who was bouncing around LA. You know, one of the players on the UCLA national championship team in '95. Oh, I'm sure we could come up with some others if you push me hard enough. Yeah, and I'm gonna ask about both of those guys. Um, but the one guy that I really want to ask you about is Andre Miller, and uh, this is probably going to be a it's kind of a technical question, so I'm going to ask it as elementary as I can. So it's a really nerdy basketball question, but how much better of a player did you become playing with an elite point guard like Andre? And like, what I mean by that is like, how did he help you elevate your game as far as like, maybe it's the language that he has with you with his eyes, like directing you with his eyes on where to be on the court rather than telling you, or maybe throwing the ball where you should be rather than where you are. So, I mean, what can you tell us about the little things that made Andre so great and that made you a better player? That is a phenomenal question. So let me do let me do the complimentary part to Andre first, and then I'll do the uh, non-complimentary part to the uh, AAU coach second. Um, but for Andre, I think he was one of those guys who he was able to see the game in just kind of a different way, right? And uh, I think he, he, listen, he was not a speed demon by any stretch back then, nor was he once he got to the NBA. Right. Uh, I think he was phenomenal with the angles, and he was really great at being able to seal people. So he could take one dribble, have someone on his back draw a double team and then be able to pass it off. And I mean, that, that's what I was doing from this was AAU ball, right? Uh, I mean, so I'm not, there's not a lot of post-ups that are taking place. I'm relying on him to put the ball, uh, get me the ball in kind of the right spot. Um, and he was able to do that. Uh, you know, dribbling, with, I haven't thought about this in like 30 years, but that's a great question. Uh, <laughs> dribbling, I think he was phenomenal at keeping his head up on the dribble. Uh, I don't, he, he was never someone who was super flashy. So there wasn't a ton of like, you know, behind the back and spins and stuff. I think he was really good at always having, uh, always having complete court vision. And he, again, he understood the angles uh, and I happen to be pretty good at moving to the right spots. And so I think he was always great about being able to find that. Now that's the incredibly complimentary part to Andre, right? He was an excellent basketball player. Uh, it's difficult to even say this with a, well, I'm starting to chuckle even saying it. Uh, our AAU coach had us run the flex. I mean, imagine that. This is 1994. <laughs> like, you know, today, like, just roll with the balls and play, right? Yeah. yeah, it's running the flex, a slowdown offense in AAU basketball. So kind of a tough way to, you know, a tough way to showcase the skills of a lot of the players. But obviously, Andre was such an excellent player that he, you know, broke free of those confines and was able to really showcase himself. Yeah, and it's kind of funny to run such a slow offense with an elite point guard like Andre, but at the same time, he's not very fast. So I can see how it kind of worked. But, I mean, at the same time, you want Andre to have his freedom. That was yeah, that was strange. I, I was chuckling about that as I was prepping for it, uh, as I was prepping to talk to y'all. Uh, and 
why it, you know we were successful so i guess we won games that way but god that seems pretty stupid to do it that way <laughs> i mean how was he as far as a leader because leadership isn't really something that you think about when it comes to au that's kind of a hard thing to showcase in au there's not a lot of directing and like organization in au like there is like on a high school or a college team without like a system or a foundation so did you how was he as a leader like do you think he got a small sample size of that with him in au or do you think his leadership actually showed a lot more from what he's able to do at the au level with you guys so uh, andre was quiet you know uh, it, again this is not anyone who's a close friend of mine uh, but he, he was quiet he was so damn good that it was obvious uh you know that you, that you followed him and he was such a you know kind of a consummate teammate right i mean he he was not I guess he became a pretty good jump shooter once he was, uh, you know, through Utah in the NBA, but he was not a great jump shooter then, but he was always phenomenal at distributing the ball uh, and ensuring that everyone was involved. So I think his leadership was probably a combination of just his control through everything. And he, you know, he was, he was always under control emotionally, but then he was also somebody who controlled the game so thoroughly because he had the ball in his hand so often. Um, but so I had a limited lens on him just because we, we were just in the AAU context. Uh, the right. school that he went to is called Verbum Day, which um, kind of a legendary school in Los Angeles. Uh, and I think that's where Raymond Lewis went, who's often considered the best player, uh, best high school player ever in LA. Um, but so Andre, it, you know, took that team. I can't remember how far they went, but I suspect that's where a lot more of his leadership came in. And then I think he obviously turned it up once he got with somebody like Majerus at Utah. I mean, I think he, he was really able, able to harness what Andre had. And I would expect he became more vocal. But that was, he, he was quiet. Uh, I mean, he was a quiet guy. And he really blossomed in that AAU time. He came in with really no state name. I mean, he probably had a local name, but he definitely didn't have a national name. But by the end of the, end of the time in AAU... Obviously, Utah took him, and I think he was a Prop 48 kid at the time. So Utah took him even knowing that he was going to be sitting out a year. You know, I have a question for you because I'm always interested about this with AAU and the McDonald's camp um, and the Nike camp where you start hearing about all, like, the greatest players that played in this. And it's really surprising to hear, like, wow, all these guys were on one specific team. Was, it, was Andre Miller that guy when you were playing AAU, or was there somebody else you remembered that was like, this is the guy? Yeah. So in 94, it, it, it was Felipe Lopez, uh, period. Now, uh, I guess Allen Iverson started making a run at him uh, at some point. Um, but I remember the summer when I was playing out in Vegas, uh, Felipe, New York Gauchos, his was the one uh, that everyone was kind of sneaking into the gym to see. Uh, and so the team that he was playing on, it was actually him and uh, Stefan Marbury. So, uh, yeah, I mean, pretty strong team, right? Like that, that, was, uh, that was pretty much a showstopper. Um, it, and, you know, looking back, it probably should have been obvious. Or, well, that's not fair because the game was different back then, uh, but he didn't have much of a jumper, which I think is uh, kind of what always hurt him. Uh, and he's not anybody that I know, but I think he averaged like 18, 20 a game uh, over a college career. So he was obviously a really good player, um, but his was far and away the biggest name uh, that I recall through AAU. And, you know, the LA, there were a lot of good players that were out of LA, I don't think the AU teams had quite blown up in quite the same way. Uh, and so the Rockfish, again, we were a good AU program, and I think they continue to kind of churn out some. But then there were, I know I'm struggled to remember it. There was a team that Pat Barrett had, which was, I feel like they were the SoCal All-Stars. There were a handful of other ones that were kind of really getting going at the same time. Uh, the one that I remember that was really good 
uh, out of LA, uh, Doug Gottlieb, who you know, played at Notre Dame and Oklahoma State, Charlie Miller, who was a kid from, actually from Miami, he went on to Indiana, Tony Gonzalez, who was the, uh, well, not really a football player, a Hall of Famer now with the Kansas City Chiefs. Who else did they have? They may have had Tremaine Falks, who also played at um, Cal. But that, that one was a really strong squad, primarily with uh, Orange County kids and a couple of national recruits. Yeah, Tony Gonzalez is a really interesting one for me because we've had guys on that I've talked about, Antonio Gates also, you know, guys that, were, that were tight ends that were like, you know, we always like to ask. Another one was um, Julius Peppers. Like, how good were they as basketball players? And a lot of guys would say they were super physical down low. And, you know, all three of them could have probably played pro ball if they wanted to, which I, which I thought was really, really interesting to hear. We want to talk about Rico Harris for a bit. He's another sure. guy you played with who a lot of listeners might not remember. I know Zach's got some interesting questions about him that are not basketball related, but I'm going to keep it basketball. Um, what do you remember about him as a teammate, about his game and how really good it was? Like we were talking, you, I mean, you mentioned his name glowing right off the bat, but let's, let's dive into that a little bit more about him as a player. I am, you all have done your research, uh, pulling up some Rico <laughs> Harris stuff. That is, uh, that is really great. So Rico was, uh, he, he was no great athlete, um, but it, now looking back, I think he was probably about six, seven, six, eight. So he was a big guy, um, had massive feet. Absolutely massive feet, which I remember, uh, really remember about him. Like size 18s, he, right? <laughs> is that what it was? Okay, yeah. thank you. Yeah, I mean, which are, I'm only a size 17, so he was bigger than me. Um, but Rico was, uh, he had such amazing skills and footwork. Uh, and so skill, his ability to shoot it, you know, from deep uh, and then handle the ball, which again, he was just like from a suburb of a suburb. He was from a, a pretty far a pretty far out of uh, uh, L.A., um, well, I guess it's LA County, but kind of on the, uh, on the outskirts. Uh, he had really, really great skills. Uh, and one of those guys who was able to rebound, just one of those guys who knew where the ball was going to come. So he was able to do, you know, two of the most important things in scoring and rebounding. And he just had an incredible natural gift for that. He was a delightful, if, you know, kind of young person. Uh, he was, a, you know, quick with a laugh, really easy guy to get along with. And he probably more so than Andre went from absolutely nobody to arguably the top player in Los Angeles. If memory serves, Rico was a year or two behind me. So I graduated in 94. That would have made him somewhere in the class of 95, 96, somewhere in there. Um, but his, uh, his basketball ability was really, really some of the best that I can remember being around. And he was uh, just a clear star of a superstar. Don't remember him being a, uh, an above the rim player. But he was somebody who was able to control the game just, you know, just based on his uh, scoring ability alone. Um, yeah. If, yeah, go for it. Oh, no, go ahead. I didn't mean to stop. Oh. Yeah, no, my recollection then uh, kind of as his career went, and I'm sure you'll have the follow-up questions on it. I believe he ended up signing with Arizona State out of high school. Uh, and that he may, I don't think he was ever able to play there. Uh, I, my recollection is that he then bounced back to LA City College, which is a whole different discussion that we can go on about, uh, and played for, again, if it was LA City, then he played for a kind of legendary slash infamous name in LA basketball circles, again, Mike Miller, uh, who was a long time and very successful head coach at LA City, uh, before Rico went on to Cal State Northridge, and then ultimately some strange things happened in his life, which may be you know, the direction we're going. Yeah. And that's kind of what I wanted to ask about. I wasn't sure exactly how close you were with him or how much that you talked to him, but I mean, it's a really bizarre story. I mean, it's to me, it's one of the more bizarre stories in sports. I mean, he basically 
disappeared and nobody yep. has seen him since. I think that was in 2014. So, I mean, no foul play was revealed. I'm sure you probably don't really have an answer, but I'm going to kind of ask anyway, just in case you had time to be around him. But, I mean, do you know what kind of teammate or person he was? I mean, was he a pretty stable guy? Like, when you heard about that story, was it shocking to you, or was there something inside of you that could see how he might be in a tough situation where maybe he wanted to disappear after what he went through? Yeah, and I think I can see both sides of that. I would the story you're probably referencing is the one that Flinder Boyd wrote. Uh, and I can't remember the periodical or the online uh, mag that it was in, uh, but it, that was really an exceptional article. Um, I, it, so I, I, I was not super close with Rico. It's not like we ever hung out outside of, uh, outside of basketball. I did drive him home, you know, so, I mean, we spent time together in the car and that sort of thing. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all if he had, um, some difficult times growing up. Uh, and certainly the last time that I saw him was at a junior college tournament. So I played Juco ball at uh, West Valley. He had gone to, and again, I think he was in LA city. I, uh, and so when I saw him there, um, I think he was a different person at that time. So again, that would have been late nineties. So well before, well before whatever happened to him happened, um, he was still happy. But I think he was, it definitely seemed that he was battling some demons at that time. Uh, and just, it, 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 again, I don't want to make him sound like a bad guy. I mean, a lot of us have you know, made decisions that we uh, you know, re regret. But it seemed like he was probably doing some more self-medicating than I think uh, some of the rest of us had. So uh, in, between reading the article and just what I knew of Rico, I suspect that he probably had some mental health issues that he was trying to work through. Uh, and I certainly hope that he's alive and well. Um, and, you know, handling those things, but it seems like it's an open question of where he is today. You know, the hard thing about it is, and, and we're big proponents of this with our show, is mental health is such an important thing that really 20, 30 years ago wasn't talked about. And in sports, you know, I think we can all agree because we all played sports. That was really something you didn't talk about. You know what I mean? It wasn't something you confided in your coaches or anybody, really. So do you think maybe... You said Arizona State. Do you think that was maybe one of the icebergs, you know, that hits, that affects the – because, I mean, Arizona State, you know, Pac-10 or Pac-12 school, you know, I mean, big opportunity for them. That kind of doesn't really happen for them. you think that's kind of like the first big hit on turning to, you know, kind of where he might have turned to? So, again um... – I'm going to do a little bit of speculating. I'm not going to, I'm going to sure. try not to go too far out just because I don't know. A lot of kids who, listen, I was incredibly lucky. My entire life has been a joke of just, you know, but I got lucky born to a two-parent family, two working professionals. I happen to be seven feet tall, right? Like my parents go to every game. A lot of the kids that I played with didn't have those same things. Uh, and I would say that this probably applied to Rico. I think it applied to Andre as well, where I don't remember a ton of family members being there, you know, watching games. So I, I don't, and again, I was driving him home. And we lived it, we lived a ways out, right? I mean, this is 45 minutes to an hour outside of where we were playing. So I don't know that there was a ton of family support for him. Uh, a school like Arizona State, I think is going to be dang near impossible for any athlete to thrive at when it's their first time away from home. Uh, yeah. I mean, there were plenty of kids, you know, and I, again, I went to just a suburban LA high school, suburban LA white kid high school, right? There were a lot of people who were going to Arizona State because they knew that it was going to be a fun place to go. You know, they, they knew what uh, kind of what they were getting into. I don't know how well somebody who's probably really leaving Los Angeles for the first time 
is going uh, is to do there. Uh, and so between everything that I would expect he was exposed to once he stepped foot at Arizona State and then the career or the basketball not really working out the, the same way, I wouldn't be shocked at all if those two uh, combined to really create some issues. And then, listen, coming back to junior college is a, you know, you're coming back to, you know, live at home, live in the city that you grew up in, and playing at a junior college when you are a major recruit like him. Whole different thing from what it was for me. Uh, but that's, uh, I'd expect that's going to be an ego hit as well. Yeah. You know, it's like you're leading right into the next question I'm going to ask. It's like perfect synergy right here. Um, I wanted to ask you about re your recruitment. We get a lot of NBA guys on, so I'm curious, you know, about role players, guys like yourself, what it's like going through the recruiting process. Did you experience any broken promises or anything that made you feel like, oh, I feel like this is going this way, but it didn't go this way? Or were people more direct with you about what they wanted you to do, fill in the role, you know, as a role player on the team? Yep. Yep. Um, so I, in a somewhat unique way, eh probably not unique at all. I and mean, it's unique for every one of us to go through recruiting. Uh, I did it a little bit out of high school uh, and then I got recruited to junior college. Then I got recruited back to D1 when I was coming out of Chico, right? So I've, so I've seen this a number, a number of different times. It's a long, long time ago now. Um, so I don't have <laughs> anywhere close to the great recruitment stories that, uh, that your folks are going to have. But I think everyone was always pretty upfront with me. Uh, and again, that's Arguably, I was a little bit more mature, but looking back, there were all sorts of stupid things that I did. Uh, but I, I think they understand kind of the family, uh, the family dynamic that they're dealing with. And, it, you know, kind of the best example of the honesty in coaching. I can remember the Air Force Academy being in. Uh, being in. And that was kind of a, the level, like, if everything had it cracked properly for me, I probably could have been like a good WCC player, right? Like a good player at a Pepperdine, University of San Diego, something like that. Um, uh, or you know, UC Santa Barbara, some, some of those sorts of places. Uh, and so I think that the mid-majors were the ones who were recruiting me. I got letters from everybody, right? So I had buckets full of letters. And at the, it, at the beginning, I thought these things were real, that these are going to be opportunities that are you know, going to present themselves. They're going to see that I'm 6'11 or whatever, and then I've got these grades, and they're going to want me on their team. They saw the basketball ability too, right? And they knew that this isn't, uh, this isn't somebody who we're going to win long time or long-term with. Um, but coming back to it, the Air Force Academy, I remember uh, that coach being in my house and the way they had to recruit was straight up. Right? And I remember him saying, you know, if you come here your first year or what, and I can't remember what they call it. It's like a plea that uh, the Navy and something else. But anyway, your, fir your first year here, you will have 30 minutes of free time a week. I remember thinking, 30 <laughs> minutes? What the hell? Like, <laughs> you, were, you were budgeted, right? Like, it's this what time you yeah. wake up, this what time you go to school, this what time you eat, all that it's, stuff. It's like, not even minutes. enough time for a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. Little did I know how, uh, how technology would take over. Uh, 30, 30 minutes of free time. Uh, and then he followed that up with, uh, and I can't remember what the percentage was, and it is 10% female. Now, bear in mind, right? Like I'm six eleven. I'm a nice, awkward. Uh, I'm a nice, awkward guy at that time. It's not like the ladies are beating down my door to begin with. But I was like ten percent. Like I'm gonna have no chance to ever talk to a girl, right? Like they're gonna go for all the other guys instead of me. Uh, so you know, Air Force Academy was very upfront about it. Uh, and I, I recall it being uh, a pretty, uh, a pretty good experience overall. Um, I, I can also recall you know, learning that I wasn't as good uh, as I thought it was. Uh, Wake Forest, for whatever reason, was recruiting me incredibly hard. I'm talking, you know, phone calls with Dave Odom. Now, the year before that, 
they had just gotten this other guy who was pretty good, right? Like, and so I guess they're thinking that they might need a backup for Tim Duncan, right? I'm not going to be that guy. Like, you know, I'm probably not going to help them on that. Uh, but I still remember being at one of the camps, uh, and it was one of those early morning games. So there aren't a whole lot of coaches. And there's the guy with a Wake Forest shield on his, uh, on his shirt. <laughs> I remember coming out of the game, and for whatever reason, I just kind of looked over it, happened to make eye contact with him at the same time as he was striking a name off his list, which I'm sure was me, right? Uh, and so, uh, it, it, you know, I, I didn't have a chance to see it for sure. But uh, at that point, they, they kind of stopped calling. Um, but no, I, I think I was uh, recruited. I think things were pretty straight up. Uh, I ended up going to Cal Poly. Uh, and it, you know, it shaped my life in a great way. But uh, it wasn't a phenomenal basketball experience. Yeah, and we wanted to ask that question because most of the guys we get on here, obviously, you know, like ex-NBA players who are like five-star recruits and, you know, yep. they're told one thing by North Carolina and then it's like a completely different thing. Like the Paul Shirley story, like I'm sure that you heard. I mean, like crazy things happen. So we're really curious what it was like for kind of like a mid-major type guy, like you were yep. saying. But I got to ask about that Cal Poly team, the 1-26 and team. I mean, the losing a season <laughs> for a first-year Division One school. I'm a coach, so this is like something that's, extremely mind-blowing and interesting to me but I don't even really know how to ask it I'm, so I'm just going to ask what happened I mean that's the question like what happened or what didn't happen I guess that should have happened <laughs> listen you're talking to the starting center who was deemed not good enough to go play at Wake Forest right it was a lack of talent that's what it was I mean of, co of course that was what uh, that was what our biggest problem was um, but so Cal Poly is a uh, well I should say San Luis Obispo so Cal Poly is located within San Luis Obispo an unbelievable city on the central coast of California right so you're about midway between Los Angeles and San Francisco just absolutely beautiful uh, and they made the decision I guess it was in 93 is when they would have done it a student referendum uh, to decide that they were going to go division one um, and I think a lot of schools have done that recently. Uh, we can talk about whether that's a good or a bad idea. Uh, but so the 94-95 season is the first one. And the, it, you know, so for a couple of years leading up to that, they've been trying to recruit more Division I talent. Obviously, we didn't have enough, and it was too much, uh, and it, it was too much low-level Division I talent is what we had. Um, my freshman class, I guess there were six of us, and we joined a team that um, you know, it was just kind of like a middling division two program trying to make the lead to division one. Uh, so it was a combination of lack of talent and uh, just extreme overscheduling. Uh, but the overscheduling comes because it's almost impossible for them to get games. So we had to, you know, we had to fly out and play a whole bunch of different uh, guarantee games, which I'm sure we'll get into. And basically we were going to anyone who would play us at any time. You know, schools that are just looking to fill, uh, to fill a, a scheduling gap and you know, they're not always going to get people who are willing to travel, you know, uh, over like a Christmas break or something like that. Uh, and Cal Poly was willing to do that just because we had to try to make a name for ourselves. So uh, I think that, I mean, those two were, uh, those two were the problem. I mean, we can uh, hop in any kind of like direct questions on it, but uh, we were, uh, we were overmatched and playing schools that we just had in our best days. I don't think we could have beaten. That's, I'm glad that you brought that up because I, I feel like a lot of people don't understand maybe when a new school comes in right away to compete at the Division One level, how tough it is with the scheduling. And I was looking at your schedule and even your conference schedule looked bizarre. It's like you're playing Sac State like back-to-back -back nights. And I mean, yeah. so it's just kind of weird. Like you just don't really see that anymore. Like playing Sac State back-to-back -back or, you know, Cal State, Northridge, whoever back-to-back -back. is pretty bizarre. Yeah, so we were thrown in um, – 
it, so I guess there are a couple things that happen when you go to Division One. Obviously, one is that you can start pulling in, uh, you can pull in more money. Uh, there are other things you can, the other kind of nice perks. You get to say that you're a Division One program, and kids are going to like that. Um, you are not eligible for the NCAA tournament. So I think had uh, what we went one and twenty six. Had we gone twenty seven and zero, like there's no at large bid or anything, right? So it, it's difficult to, it, you know, so you're targeting a particular group of kids who are looking for the opportunity to play D one ball looking for the opportunity to stay close to home, kind of whatever it is. Uh, th those are the ones that you're going to be able to recruit. Um, the conference that we were in was thrown together, and it was just a makeshift conference for a couple of years uh, called the America West Conference. And so it was only four schools. And so it was Cal Poly Cal State Northridge, which is in suburban Los Angeles, Sac State, uh, and then Southern Utah, for whatever reason. I can't remember what conference Southern Utah had been in, um, but they ended up they ended up just getting stuck in there with us. Um, and kind of an unusual spot. I mean, just throw out a couple other, you know, random basketball notes. Uh, but Sacramento State was coached by Don Newman, who ended up uh, ended up becoming the Arizona State head coach. And then I think he ended up with the Spurs organization. Uh, and the best player in the conference, though, no, it's right. I'm going to forget his first name, Sean. Uh, Sean Allen, who had played at University of Arizona, uh, then he was a bounce back, and he had transferred down to uh, Southern Utah. So you've got, it, it was a conference made up of kind of small or small time players, uh, some Juco, uh, some Juco guys, which we didn't, we didn't have any that year at Cal Poly. We did later. Uh, and then, um, you know, bounce backs. So it, it, it was an unusual spot to be in for sure. Yeah. A lot of people don't understand that too. You know, Zach, very good point about that. We're, we we live in Nevada. We live in Reno. Yeah. And I remember when our football team went D1. And it was like the same situation. They were playing a lot of teams like I never heard of. I moved out here from New Jersey, and I used to joke around saying they're playing like Potato State next week because it'd be all these schools I'd never heard of. I was a big Penn State fan growing up because my dad went there. So it is a big shift, and it took it took our football team quite a bit of years before they could get up to where they were, where they were actually playing in bowl games, which was really exciting. In your first college game, you get to play against one of our former guests, Chris Heron, and that's the broken <laughs> wrist game. Um, what do you remember about Tris and, uh, and that play specifically? Yeah. So, it, and that's one of the other things that turned me on to your podcast. I should have mentioned, I mean, we've, it, it, it's such a kind of strange sliding doors moment for us, right? Because that was for us at Cal Poly, this, you know, this was our chance at the big time, right? Like if this was the first game, like folks have been waiting for this for a long time. Um, so the athletic director at Cal Poly was a guy named John McCutcheon, who had come from Boston College. Uh, so he was able to he was able to arrange that game. Boston College, if memory serves, uh, I think they were coming off their Elite Eight or Sweet Sixteen run the year before with like Bill Curley and some of those guys. Uh, and they just they had this really good recruit class with um uh, obviously headlined by Chris Heron. Um, so getting out there uh, it was a great experience, uh, and I remember it, so a couple or facilities were garbage, right? I mean, like, this was a glorified high school gym. <laughs> we didn't have any sort of like training table, nothing like that. Uh, and I remember the Conti Forum, I don't know what it's called now, but that's where Boston College played at the time. Uh, and it backed up to the football stadium. Uh, and so they, there were suites that could swivel either way, right? So like if you're a big donor, you could go to the basketball games and also what, not that they're playing at the same time, but that, uh, that was just kind of like, they had big time football, big time basketball. I remember just being blown away by their facilities. They had a separate, uh, separate practice facility that we were, we were playing in. And it, uh, there was an elevator that connected it. So uh, I'll give you just a couple of things about Chris Aaron, and then we can kind of talk about what happened there. 
there's no chance he remembers this. I mean, this, right? Like this was like a blink of an eye for him. Uh, but I do remember being in the elevator with him, strangely, where he uh, it just, I can't remember if we were coming or going from, uh, from there, but we happened to be in the elevator and somehow we couldn't figure out how to get to whatever floor we wanted to. And so he helped us out with that. Um, the other one is probably a little bit more, uh, a little bit more topical uh, and more interesting for people. Uh, BC kicked our teeth in, right? Like, I mean, we, we got uh, we got absolutely run out of the gym, um, and so they had uh, Heron, obviously an exceptional player. They also had a guy named Paul Grant, who oh, yeah. after three years at BC, he transferred out to Wisconsin, uh, and then he was a first round draft pick of the Timberwolves. So, I mean, they they had like legitimate NBA talent, right? Um, but Chris, Heron, we had uh, our small forward delightful guy uh kind of a hothead and he used to get pretty uh pretty feisty during the games and i remember uh so this must have been before heron busted his wrist uh but at one point heron is shooting free throws and our guys yapping at him uh while heron's at the free throw line (laughs) heron uh, takes a couple of dribbles looks over and says shut the fuck up you're down by 40 uh it was such a delightful distillation of you know just everything that was going on in that game you know just guys who we were so far over our heads that we're yapping at you know one of the best players in the country when we're down by 40 um but listen it was you know it's one of those things that we look back on and i've got a couple of good friends uh still on the team just the sheer volume of just kind of bizarre basketball coincidences it's like players on the other teams, uh, you know, coaches, as you look through those things, Karen is far and away the biggest one, right? Again, this was 40 minutes, 40 minutes when we're, when we're on the court together. Obviously, we'll heard the story. Um, his life was going to go in a particular direction, almost certainly. And that just really may have hastened it, right? Like, just because he took this one utterly freak fall in one game against a shitty D1 team that he never should have been playing against, it causes his life to, you know, totally go off the rails for however many years. Amazing how he's pulled it together. Um, but that, you know, it's just kind of those things through, throughout basketball and then throughout life that are just so, you know, just kind of so momentous. And, you know, we've been, I think it applies to every one of us uh, going about our day. You kind of never know how, what you do to somebody else, how, how it's going to, how it's going to impact them. You know, Absolutely. So whatever. Try, to, try to smile, try to be nice to people. Absolutely. Yeah. He, uh, he was very inspiring when he was on our show. And it's funny because when you just said that about you're down by 40, I could totally hear him saying it in his Boston accent. <laughs> yeah, I didn't do a good job on that one, did I? Yeah. <laughs> that is exactly what he said. I believe it. I believe it. Great guy. Um, he was just, he's wonderful to talk to. And like you said, it was great to see him turn his life around as much as he did with his foundation. It's just amazing. I'm a huge Knicks fan. I grew up a Knicks fan. Um, you played against Fisdale. Was uh, hopefully he could play better than he could coach. <laughs> wow, you guys really did your homework. Yeah, I was going to come straps with that one. Yeah, so Fiz, he was a starting point guard for University of San Diego. Man, yeah. that is that was really nice job. I watch I watch I watch a lot of old school hoops. Let Let me tell you, I'm fascinated with like mid major colleges. I'm it's weird. I know. <laughs> so wow, Eric too. He 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 loves his old school hoops. I love that. Well, well you, you pulled out the Fisdale. Yeah, I mean, he was the starting point guard. I feel like he was defensive player of the year in the WCC. He may have been player of the year uh, one of those oh. years. Um, but they were, uh, you know, I mean, that was just kind of a small uh, WCC school. And they tried to get off the ground. They've got the, what do they call it, the Slim Jim. Somehow they got the Jenny Craig money. Uh, and so they, they built out a pretty nice spot down in San Diego. Uh, but it was uh, pretty much a nothing school when we played against them. They beat us twice. 
Now, speaking of wins, did you guys celebrate your one win? <laughs> Thank you for delivering that with a smile. As you uh, you know, stick the knife as deep in my heart as you can. Uh, so that one, yeah, I need to go back and look, but I think that was dead in the middle of the season. Uh, so I think we were 0-13 going into that game. And this is against the mighty Division Three Menlo College. I can't remember what they are. I think they're the Oaks or something like that. Uh, but so Menlo, which is uh, real, real close to Stanford, so a you know, very, very nice part of town. Uh, and we're going into a D3 game. Uh, and no, <laughs> we were, I think we were barely happy at the end. But we beat them by three points, right? I mean, like we were... I, we were kind of so disheartened, I think, through that season uh, and then kind of having having that game right in the middle. You know, I think the, the intent was for it to give us kind of a bump. Uh, and then obviously they, when they scheduled, they didn't know we were going to be 0-13, and nor did we, right? But I think the hope was that we'd be able to get a momentary uplift and then kind of cruise through the rest of the season. Um, no, we, we, we won the game. And I think it was just kind of a... Well, let's see what else we can go do now. You know, and, and, and that's not a you know not a knock on Menlo College at all. I mean, they were they were doing the right thing. I think we were just so beat down uh, that there was barely kind of like that cathartic thing of like what because most of us had come from at least fairly winning high school programs, so most of us were used to winning. And at zero and thirteen. You know, you got some kind of dark days, and then little did we know that it would be that one in thirteen, and then zero in twenty-six is the way it was going to go. Um, but anyway, it, it, you know, it was a fun season, punctuated uh, <laughs> with just one win. Yeah, and you know, I'm really glad that you kind of brought up the dark days because I mentioned earlier I coached basketball and I've coached losing teams before, and it can be really hard on kids. Like they, especially young high school kids, like some really don't know how to cope with it so what I try to preach is more than just basketball I try to keep it beyond basketball so this isn't a smart ass question when I ask this but what was the biggest win for you that season like what did you take away from that season personally or as a team that helped you be a winner maybe even outside of basketball moving forward because I know like I said a lot of kids struggle with that yep yeah and I don't want this one to come off too corny uh but it's going to be kind of like the classic uh hard work thing uh, and I'll try to illustrate that with a story that I hope uh, I hope this kind of pointed out that it's not just empty words there. Um, so you know we go one in twenty six and we you know we totally suck, but it remains a team. There's still a group of us that are like legitimately in pretty close contact. There's one guy who happens to live in Reno who I'm in really regular contact with, and we went back to try to figure just to try to figure out what was uh, what was going on there, right? Like what. But what was it that we that we were doing? How did that season go on? Like how our average game was a 30 point loss, right? Like that was the average game that we suited up for. We were going to lose by 30. I think our biggest loss, I feel like it was the mid fifties against Arizona state. It was the mid fifties against Idaho state on the road. We lost by 40 at Eastern Washington, right? Like we were getting our teeth kicked in. And so we were like, what went on in that season? A bunch of guys ended up quitting the team other guys who kind of dropped off for academic reasons, different things happened. Um, but we said, you know, what, what was it? Uh, and this was the mid nineties when not every game was taped, right? Not every game was televised. It, it was a difficult thing. So we started, honest to God, we started looking through our parents' video closets to see what VHS or like the handheld tapes that they had made. Turned out my parents had uh, taken one against Southern Utah at the end of the season. Um, and then we, a buddy of mine and I, we went on a letter writing campaign and Stanford had another, uh, Stanford had the game tape of uh, having played against us. So 
the game against Southern Utah was a home game. And it was towards the very end of the season. And we put that on and we are denying the ball up and down the line, right? Like we are, we are diving for loose balls. There is just stuff where it just doesn't make any sense, right? Like we were, I don't know, probably one in 22 or something at that time. Like why on earth did we still care? Uh, and it was the group of people that we were around. Uh, so it was the group of people that we were around who made it fun to continue to compete. Um, so like we were kids, right? Like we didn't understand our physical limitations. We all thought we were better than we were. Uh, but it was a group of guys who pushed us, uh, who pushed one another to go kind of as far as we could. And so it, it really was a thing about hard work and just kind of the spirit of, uh, spirit of being together and going through it as a group. Um, I don't, I don't know that there is one, like beyond that, I don't know kind of what it is. It was just a group of us who we wanted to play. And listen, one in 26 might've been the best we could do. Like we were busting our asses against Southern Utah at the end of the season when it didn't make a difference. We weren't going to the NCAA tournament. You know, like we wanted to get a win. We just wanted to play uh, as all it was. So, uh, you know, I can't say too much beyond that. I mean, it was just kind of a special, it was a special group of guys once we got to the end of the season. And there was some rocky road uh, at the beginning. We just loved playing ball. Yeah, and I love that answer too. Just that you still had that fight at the end of the season. I was really curious what that end of the season was going to look like for you guys (laughs) as far as like practicing games. So I'm like, I'm really glad that you shared that with me. And I mean, that's going to help me for when, if I ever have another losing team, which I hope not, but I have to ask uh, if you enjoyed your time there and you enjoyed the guys and, you know, you seem to like the people around you, why the transfer? Um, Cause I know that you transferred over to Mercer. So why the transfer? Yep. So uh, season comes to an end and we're one in 26, right? Uh, so no surprise, the head coach gets fired. Uh, so the head coach at the time uh, was going to name Steve Beeson. You know, very tragic story. He has since passed away from uh, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, but he was a, he was an excellent person. He was overmatched as a coach, but he was a phenomenal person and he did what he could. And I guess I should have said he, uh, he took pride in like the little things and some of them were really stupid. Like when you would come into the gym, uh, if you were wearing a sweatshirt, um, you would have to fold the sweatshirt and like put it in a particular place. But right, he prided himself on kind of like having us do these little things. Um, but one in 26, right? Uh, college basketball is about getting wins. So of course he gets fired. Uh, and that's the end of that. Um, whole different story that we could go through on kind of what it was like being on the it was on the team interviewing the different coaching candidates but then the new head coach comes in it's a guy named Jeff Schneider um, so Schneider had coached under Tubby at Tulsa and he was coming from Washington State where he coached under Kevin Eastman uh, so Eastman has since kind of become like a player development guy and he, he's done a number of things um, but so Schneider came in and he was kind of a new young hot coach uh, coming in to take over I thought that this was going to be a phenomenal. Uh, I was the only player who voted in favor of him being the hire. Uh, so I thought he was going to be the best coach. He was one that I liked the best. And he was proposing coming in and doing a, you know, pressing style and doing uh, really trying to emulate what Tubby did uh, at Tulsa. Um, that was a poor decision. <laughs> so Coach Snyder and I did not get along. That was a, that was a disastrous basketball decision. Uh, and, Part of it is, you know, he's coming in and he wants to uh, establish his own thing. Um, so he wants to push anyone out uh, that he can. I should have realized that. Uh, partly I stuck around, you know, there were some girl relationships that were going to work out better than they did. Um, but it, it was time for me to move on. Uh, and so the season was uh, getting ready to start. I ended up breaking my thumb, which pushed me to take a, take a red shirt. 
Um, I wanted to say uh, playing Division One basketball, uh, and that meant becoming a four-two-four. So going from four-year school down to a JUCO, getting my AA, and then being re-recruited uh, after that. Yeah, which um, uh, but, can, can I ask you about that sure. junior college really quick? Because you played sure. for legendary coach Bob Burton, if I'm not mistaken. I did. And I, uh, I mean, I think a lot of the average fans don't understand that you can still be like a legendary coach, even when you're at the lower levels, like the junior college, because I think he has he's like a nine time coach of the year award winner. I mean, he has a lot of success down there. So what did you learn from him at that oh. level that maybe helped you get back to the division one level? Like, what did you what did you take away from him? Yeah, uh, that's a good one. Yeah. So uh, Burton was a was and uh, is a phenomenal coach. Uh, so after leaving West Valley, he went to, I think, Fresno. And then he went into Cal State Fullerton, who he ended up taking to the NCAA tournament within a few years. Um, so the California junior, uh, so there's two different junior college systems in uh, America. One is the California junior colleges where uh, no scholarships, but what you have to do to be eligible is enroll in 12 units. You don't have to pass classes. You just got to be enrolled in 12 units, right? So I mean, California junior college ball, there, that was the wild west. I mean, there was some crazy stuff going on. National junior colleges can give scholarships, uh, but you actually have to like pass classes and stuff, right? And so uh, you run into some issues. Um, Burton had set up West Valley as kind of a North Carolina type program. Uh, and so at the time we were running the box offense, uh, which is an incredible one. If you go back and look at like the early 80s, uh, North Carolina teams with Jordan and Perkins and all the great players, that's what they were running. And that's what we ran. This was a winning program. Um, Burton was a brutally difficult person to play for ruthless uh the type, type of coach where you know it, these things don't really last any longer lots of motherfucking kids lots of bad words <laughs> uh, and i mean i can swear a blue streak but some of his oh boy uh, they could <laughs> blow your hair back um our team was excellent uh and we had uh, a lot of size so we had a bunch of guys go d1 which doesn't happen from every junior college team uh, but we had me another guy went to santa clara portland state Actually, two to Santa Clara, another guy to uh, actually another guy to Reno, uh, and he played. Uh, so he had a nice career there. Um, but playing for Burton, uh, I mean, he—if you thought you were playing hard before, it, uh, that's where you really learned how to play hard. So he pushed you so hard uh, and to the breaking point. And for a lot of people, it pushed them beyond the breaking point. Um, but playing for him, uh, I mean, it was a great experience. There are things that I look back and wish I would have done differently, um, and I'm sure he does the same. Uh, but it. Being with a winning program like that after coming from a losing program, that was a pretty stark change. Uh, and because he was such a, it, he had established such a program, he had a bunch of different coaches coming through. I will tell you just right off the bat that uh, in the preseason, uh, Riley Wallace, longtime head coach at the University of Hawaii, I was sitting across the table from him. And he said, I'll take you right now. And I said, you know, I think I'm just going to roll the dice and see how things go later in the season. So I'm the guy who turned down Hawaii to ultimately go to Macon, Georgia. Uh, so that, that, was a, that was an ill-fit decision. I do not recommend following my footsteps on that. Uh, but, but it was awesome. I mean, uh, West Valley was an incredible program. and it was, it was a really, really good thing for me to be around. Yeah, and when, I mean, when you're at Mercer, you still had some pretty cool experiences from what I can yep. see. I mean, you played against Duke with a team that had Elton Brand, Trajan Langdon, Battier, Chris Carowell. So, I mean, what's it like playing in Cameron Indoor Stadium compared to other arenas? I mean, obviously, Cameron, the Cameron Crazies, but what really brings that initial fear factor, like, before you even step out on the floor? Because, I mean, I'm sure, like, even walking on campus, you're just like, holy shit, this is Duke. 
<laughs> it's something different, right? Uh, so uh, I'll tell you that. Uh, so did you write down the final score of that game? It was close until the very end. Did you, if I remember end? correctly, I think it was like 128 to 64, I thought. Or oh, it come on. You're cutting, <laughs> cutting some slack here. So they or maybe it was a different game. That might have been a different it was game. One, it was 126 to 64, which I believe is uh, <laughs> still their largest home uh, uh, home victory margin is what I'm trying to get out there. Um, so yeah, I think you, you you described it really well. I mean, the mystique of Cameron is, is yeah, I mean, listen, it's awesome. I mean, I've been incredibly lucky to play in some great places. Cameron was certainly one of them. Now this was, I guess, calendar 96, I think is what it was. Um, but it's kind of funny. I mean, Cameron, it, now it's a different thing if you've been there, uh, but like they had tape holding up the uh, basket padding underneath, right? So in some ways it was just like, it was just like every other gym you go to much smaller than you expect it to be much, much smaller than you expect it to be. Um, but they also know what they're doing, uh, in that all the small schools that come through there, part of it is just a, you know, pilgrimage to Mecca for us. Right. And so we're walking around with, uh, the cameras and taking photos of us, you know, practicing and doing stuff like that. So you get the opportunity to, to play in the gym and that part's really cool. Um, they, beat the shit out of us, right? Like, I mean, it was just an absolutely ruthless game. Uh, and in that one, uh, kind of the story behind that goes, so this one, it was, it was kind of bookended in two ways. Number one, I think they were number one in the country. And then they went to Michigan uh, and lost at Michigan, right? So they dropped to number three and they're just pissed off. Like it's, it's not a good thing to begin with. Number two, this was the game immediately before, I think Thanksgiving break. So that means that no one wants to be there, right? Like every one of us are just looking forward to getting home, not having to worry about like getting yelled at for, uh, for another game. So that game starts off relatively close. Uh, I am proud to say that I didn't miss a, didn't miss a shot from the field. Uh, so I was three for three and took the five fouls and got the whole, you know, the camera crazy thing where they do the, you know, I can't remember what it, whatever it is. They wave their hand at, the, at you and then you, uh, you have to sit down once you fell out. Um, the game was relatively close until I think they hit like four or five threes in a row. And at that point, the route was on. Uh, two things that happened there. One, uh, Wojo threw an Elliott to Chris Burgess, uh, who he did like a reverse, uh, reverse Elliott. And so that got play of the day. And number two, Rick Price, uh, one of the kids that I played against in high school, he was on that team uh, and he got a breakaway 360. And wow. the crowd, that was loud. Uh, so I remember that was the moment when I was like, wow, this must be what it's like. I still remember, like, this must be what it's like for an entire North Carolina game. But anyway, they, they beat the tar out of us. Uh, I had a chance to go back there last year. One of my buddies uh, went into college, uh, I'm sorry, high school coaching. Uh, one of his kids played, uh, played at Duke. And so we got a chance to go up there. And it's, it's a pretty magical place. Pretty cool spot yeah. to see again. Yeah, that, that's amazing. And at least you had a great game against them, three for three. And you got the, the old Cameron Crazy wave goodbye. So, I mean, that's, that's a memorable <laughs> moment. But I have to ask, what the hell's the game plan going into a game like that? I mean, like, what, what's your coach say? Like, what was the game plan? So uh, I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, I will tell you that we did find there, uh, we found the Duke practice plan. And one of the things that Duke intended to do was, was to get me to foul out. So they lived up to their, uh, they lived up to their thing. And not that I was going to make a difference in this game, right? Elton Brand was very difficult for me to guard. Um, so I don't remember what he said about Duke. I, let, me, let me tell you a different story about, uh, about what he said when he was trying to hype us up for a, a game against Georgia. Uh, he was trying to just highlight how they, 
along the lines of like the Hoosiers, uh, this room is 10 feet tall too, right? Like along those lines, he went through the, the starting lineup of Georgia. So we're at Mercer, which is in Macon, Georgia. Athens is about an hour and a half away. And so we're going to this game and to get us hyped going into it. It was, you know, he put everyone up on the, uh, uh, on the whiteboard, just, just was kind of comparing, this is our point guard. Like this is who you're getting recruited by. And this is when Tubby had just gone to Georgia. And so it was okay. Or maybe he had just, I'm sorry, he had just left Georgia. So he had been at Georgia and then he went to Kentucky. Gigi Smith, he was recruited by nobody, right? And so he goes kind of line by line. They're two guard, R2 guard. They're three, R3. Uh, me as a five, them as a five. Well, their four guy was uh, Jumaine Jones, right? And so Jumaine Jones ended up having a cup of coffee in the NBA. And he was like, oh, well, their four guy was, uh, uh, you know, was McDonald's All-American and everything. So he, he did his best to hype us up. But I think the expectation going into Duke was let's keep this close. Uh, yeah. <laughs> let's just not get run out of the gym. It did not work out that way. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you also, I mean, there's some pretty good under the radar teams that you played against that year. Like another one I wanted to ask about was Florida international. I mean, that team had Carlos Arroyo and Raja Bell on it in like, I'm just curious from like the naked eye, like, did you ever think that they would have been like NBA material? Because I do not remember anybody being on, I don't remember those guys being on like any scouts radar or anything like that. I mean, that just seemed very under the radar to me. I continue to pump you up on this one. I am dumbfounded that you put this, uh, this amount of work in uh, to interview just some random guy. Yeah. I mean, that FIU team, uh, Carlos Arroyo and uh, Roger Bell, right? So two actual NBA players. I remember Arroyo being pretty good. So I remember Arroyo having a pretty, pretty good game. Uh, I actually had a pretty good game at FIU in that one uh, as well. Um, but I remember him being a really solid player. I don't remember Bell being that great. Uh, FIU was also coached at the time by a guy named Shaky Rodriguez. So all-time, you know, like all-time legendary nickname team. Uh, but so a good coach, uh, I think he was at Miami Senior before he got the FIU job. Uh, when they finally got rid of him, then Isaiah Thomas actually took that job, which was a bizarre and not a great, not a great hire, of course. Um, but so... Those two, I think they beat us pretty good. Uh, I don't remember the score anymore. Um, but Arroyo's the only one of those two who I remember thinking, like, this guy's probably going to be able to go on and make money. Uh, <laughs> that's why I'm not a talent scout. <laughs> hey, you know, I have a question for you that's, you know, I mean, listening to your story today has, has been really awesome. And I think it's really neat that you go from playing on a 1-26 in team to playing teams like Duke and Georgia and stuff like that. What's your favorite memory from playing at Mercer? And like, did you really think from going from that one in 26 team, you were going to get to, to where you were in Mercer? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, how cool it's really cool to think about like, you know, my hair standing up on my, on my arm from hearing, you know, that Duke story, you know what I mean? And yeah, to think, it, you know what I mean? It, it, it's, it's incredible. And I don't think it, it and this is, you know, kind of the thing that I'm not sure how many, every one of us when we're playing high school basketball, right, we expect that we're going to go to some, you know, top tier program and we're going to win everything there and just kind of keep moving on. Uh, so the ability to just kind of take a step back and just appreciate the surroundings uh, really, is, really, really was cool. Um, for me, so anyway, my junior year played at Mercer uh, and about midway through the season, we were at Troy State uh, in Alabama. I ended up tearing my ACL. Um, and so that kills off the season, uh, for my junior year rehab it, right. And I'm trying to come back to my senior year, uh, first game back that I, that I play against. This is, uh, what I remember the most clearly, uh, we were playing against Kentucky, right? So we got a rub another, uh, so at this time they're coached by Tubby. They're coming off their, 
they coming off their national championship? They are. Uh, so this would have been 98, 99. Uh, and I think they've won it in 98. Um, and they're a pretty good team. They're not a great team. They've got Jules Kamara, Hashimi Evans, Saul Smith. Um, I'd have to go back through. I think Wayne Turner was on that team. So, I mean, that, uh, Michael Bradley, who definitely had some time in the NBA. So they had a good team. This is my first game back, right? And so we're, we're, we're playing at Rupp. And, you know, warming up there, uh, I still remember, well, actually, before we get to the gym, uh, even like when you stay at the hotel that they put you up in, like there are people who are just kind of coming through and they know who's coming to town. They know who's planning to the cast that night, right? And so they're, they're kind of talking to me in the elevator and they're, they're not, they know that we're sacrificial lambs, but they're being nice to us. Um, but in the second half of that game, uh, one of my teammates, again, Mark Adamson, he gets a steal, he ends up sending me, uh, throwing me a bounce pass, which I, you know, do what I've been training to do for my entire life, and, or not my entire life, but for the 10 or 15 years that I've played basketball, I go up and dunk the ball, right? So like the same play that I've made hundreds of times in practice, right? Thousands of times uh, overall. But like, hey, I dunked it rough, right? Like how many people get to say that, right? And so I, I've still got that one. Uh, I definitely still have that one embedded in my brain that ends up becoming uh, like, just kind of like the, the comeback story. I'm, you know, and I'm not going to say that the rest of the year was great. I mean, I was an off the bench, uh, you know, so I was somebody who peaked early in my uh, uh, college career. But hey, I had the opportunity to see the country, uh, play at these incredible places, play against great teams, right? Like have the opportunity to come and tell you all about this and, you know, potentially anyone who listens to this. Like it's, it was an unbelievable experience. And yeah, I really capped it off with that one, uh, with that one dunk. And I mean, that season, we ended up losing our final game to Georgia State, if I remember correctly. Uh, and then, you know, it, I can also remember just being in the locker room and just like, huh, <laughs> like it's, it's over, right? Like, it, it, like what, what do I do now? Uh, and that, that was uh, the Mercer coach. He had, the, he had this big quote. I'm sure he borrowed it from somebody else. But once you're playing basketball, I mean, and this is the classic youth is wasted on the young, you've got about 100 games. Like, that's it. Uh, and at the beginning of your career, that seems like, you're never going to be able to count to a hundred, but then all of a sudden it's over. Right. And like, what, it, like, what do you do next? And uh, so I remember that dunk. Well, I remember our first game there. I remember that dunk. And then I remember just kind of being in the locker room, just saying like, wow, like that was it. That was five years. Of my, Cause I wasn't going to be an NBA player. I wasn't going overseas at that time. That's it. Like, wh- yeah. what do we do now? Uh, and so it was weird. Uh, it was a really, really weird experience. Um, yeah. You know, I ended up going to law school and things worked out, but it was a, uh, I mean, it was a gut punch right when it's over. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm glad that you bring those feelings up because that's something I preach to my kids too. It's because, you know, you get four years of high school. If you're lucky, you get a couple more years of college. And if you're really lucky, you'll get four. And I mean, it is over before your eyes. I remember my college career, like, unfortunately, I was injury plagued and I didn't realize that my career is going to be cut early, you know? And I mean, when you realize that that's it, you're just like, I don't know what to do now because I was planning on playing longer than this, you know? So it's a wild feeling and I'm really glad that you shared that for sure. Yeah. You know, and I mean, it's, it's big things, right. That you're never going to go to another game, but it's little things, right. You're not going to go to a practice. Uh, you're not going to get another free pair of sneakers, right? Like there are just these things that all of a sudden uh, fall away that you become accustomed to over the season, over the seasons of playing. And that's it. Now the great thing about basketball, I know we've run over a little bit, but the great thing about basketball, particularly when you're a, tall guy like me anywhere you show up you can make friends right so like i i go to a i go to a gym and i still get uh i can say not now because i'm breaking down but like i could go to i could go to games 
uh, and just an awesome, awesome way to meet people. So, I mean, basketball, incredible sport for any number of reasons, but it really, really opens doors for people. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you talk about the team aspect too. And I just got to ask, um, because obviously being on a team is a special thing. You got to have a great story that really comes to mind from all those years of being on a team in college basketball. I mean, because everybody has a crazy story from college basketball. What's the craziest <laughs> shit that you've experienced on the college floor? <laughs> Listen, obviously it's a loaded question when you ask that, right? I mean, we're not allowed to, we're not allowed to tell, uh, we're not allowed to tell half the stories. Um, there are the things, I think the things that it was, for me, it was less the stuff that happened on the court uh, because so many of our, I mean, I've told you some of them, right? Guys doing 360s against us and like all these crazy different things that happen uh, in the, in the games. So much of it was the stuff, just the absurdity of the stuff that happens on the road. Um, just the absolute absurd. And I'll tell one from uh, one from the uh, uh, Cal Poly days um, that we still talk about to, to this day. But our when you're a small college team, uh, generally when you fly in someplace, you end up renting minivans, right? And so you're, you're like three coach. Each coach is driving a minivan. You got a few players sitting in the back, right? So like, which is just inherently absurd. But we were playing in Southern Utah. Uh, and to get there, uh, the easiest way to get there is flying into McCarran, flying into Las Vegas. So we flew into Vegas, and this is uh, either 94 or 95. And, you know, so the days before cell phones, and we are, we have to go to Southern Utah, presumably to practice. It's not like we had anything important to do, but one of the guys on the team gets lost at the McCarran airport. One of the guys, he's, he's just not there. Right. So like we're, we're paging him over the intercom and, you know, trying try to get him to show up. And he never does. And the coach who I just said was a phenomenal person and was a phenomenal person said, fuck it, we're leaving. <laughs> and I remember every one of us are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> we're leaving. Like we're in Las Vegas going to Cedar City, Utah. That's it. This kid is from Los Angeles. Uh, and we pile in the minivans and we drive away. And, I, you know, all of us are still sitting there. We're like, what in the world is going on here in some utterly bizarre, like too, too crazy to remember way. Somehow he gets on a Greyhound bus and is able to meet us at a, at a different place in Utah. And somehow we were able to pick him up. Um, but yeah, we left somebody in Las Vegas, which, you know, like this sort of thing, that's part of the magic of being at the small school, right? Like, is that ever going to happen at Duke? No. Right. I mean, these, these guys are getting off. They're getting on a bus immediately. They're, you know, going to a four-star restaurant. Um, so that's some of the stuff that just, these utterly absurd things. I mean, probably not as good as you were hoping for there. But yeah, we left somebody in Las Vegas. Just left him at the airport to drive to Cedar City, Utah for a meaningless basketball game. So strange. No, that, that's a great story. It's kind of funny. I'm a musician. That's what I've did with my life and, uh, and a music teacher. And a lot of times when I hear these stories, it reminds me of stories of being on the road. Same yep. thing. You know what I mean? Like, you know, leaving somebody at a bar or, or, or leaving somebody at the hotel room, they didn't get on the bus or something. And you're just kind of going, where's our drummer or where's, you know, it's, just, it's just great stories, man. I mean, the overseas one, if you go back and listen to some of the other episodes, man, the overseas stories oh, yeah. are like we had, a, I forget, was it Chris Jones we had on and uh, he, he's a TBT player. And he was yeah. saying how he's like, Oh, I talked about the one time that I almost got kidnapped. <laughs> what? I mean, the stories are unbelievable. Um, so what's what's life like after basketball? You talked to us a little bit about it. Sounds like you ended up playing with some of the President Obama's guys playing some. Oh yeah, I forgot that I told you about that. Yeah. Um, so fast forward. Uh, it, so after law school, 
um, or well, I played all through law school uh, and then ended up moving out to DC. So I got to DC in 2003. Uh, and, you know, to make friends, you go and you start playing basketball. Uh, and you know, I still hold my own at that time. And so it was, uh, it was fun. Um, I was playing in a random league. Uh, and so then, I'm sorry, fast forward another five years to, you know, 08 when uh, all the Obama guys were going there. And I'm just playing in a random league uh, and end up playing with uh, some guys who I didn't know who they were. We're just, and we kind of become friendly through basketball. And I mean, DC, DC is an awesome, phenomenal, great, incredible place to, uh, to live. And we absolutely loved it. But DC is all about name dropping and like who you know, right? And so at a certain point, people are just kind of like, oh yeah, hey, do you know like who, who those guys were? And I had no idea. Um, but they were uh, some of the guys who uh, really were like in with the president every day. And they were, uh, they, they had real jobs, you know, unlike I was just a corporate lawyer at the time. Um, but so we became good friends with them. Uh, never played, with, and I remain good friends with them. Uh, we never played with the president. Uh, I played uh, with Arnie Duncan, the secretary of education, who had played pro ball in Australia, I think. And he played at, he played at Harvard. He's a damn good ball player. Yeah. So we played with him pretty regularly. Um, and then we got to play on the White House court. Um, so at the White House in the Obama administration, they actually put a court out on the tennis courts. So we got to play out there once, which was super fun. Um, but yeah, in, in some ways, this was just a you know a regular group of guys. So a group of guys who I wasn't in the political world. So I think that helped our friendship that I wasn't like looking to them. Like I wasn't trying to get a job or do anything, uh, do anything through them. But man, they had some pretty tough jobs. Uh, and I think that was a pretty good way for them to blow off steam. We still got a, one of them's a big Sixers fan. So we've got a, we've got a text chain with a, he, he's been having a couple, a uh, couple of tough weeks down the Sixers. <laughs> and, uh, you know, poor Ben Simmons and his inability to, uh, inability to finish at the rim. Yeah. <laughs> or shoot a three. Um, <laughs> so tell, tell our listeners about Paul Shirley. The, uh, oh, the, that was, yeah, that, that was fun. Uh, a little bit. Uh, so the, Paul Shirley, uh, obviously somebody who, again, you know, tall white guys, we've got to try to kind of bond together. Uh, and so I had followed his writing uh, when he started, I guess it was with ESPN. Uh, but then we, uh, again, I'm an attorney. I took a corporate job out in Kansas and we were living in Lawrence, Kansas, uh, which is where KU is. We became big uh, KU fans. Uh, but then all of a sudden, Shirley had written I guess it was probably a second book, but that stories I tell on dates. Uh, no, all his books are delightful if you have a chance. Uh, read them. They're well written and they're funny and, and insightful. Uh, and uh, so, as you go west from Kansas City, uh, about 40 minutes west of Kansas City is Lawrence. Another 20 minutes further is Topeka. And then he was from a smaller town north of Topeka uh, called Meriden. Well, it turns out he's doing a book signing, right? Uh, he's doing a book signing in uh, Topeka, Kansas, which is obviously number one on most uh, most authors' tours of where uh, you know where they're going to be uh, where they're going to be stopping through. Um, and so I looked at that and I was like, well, I guess I kind of got to do this. So I tried to explain to my wife with a straight face that I am driving over to Topeka to go get. Uh, you know, to go shake hands with some guy who's writing a file uh, I've followed for a number of years. She looks at me like I'm insane, like, you know, like she normally does. And I, I, I drive over to Topeka and the Topeka Barnes & Noble is not exactly hopping. Uh, so it is, you know, it is pretty quiet. But uh, so, I had, so I had the chance to talk to him for, uh, you know, a couple of minutes. Uh, he did, you know, I mean, in fairness to him, he, had, he, he definitely had plenty of people there uh, who had come for the book signing. But, you know, just had a chance to talk to him and said, hey, listen, I mean, you know, kind of funny, funny stuff. And at that time, he was living in Los Angeles. So to a certain extent, 
uh, we had traded places, right? So he's in LA, I'm in Kansas. Joked about that for a minute. And then I guess Mercer had played against Iowa State. I guess the year after I graduated. So strangely, he actually had some memories of Mercer, even though they didn't involve him or me. Uh, but just a tremendously nice guy. And I guess I can share it with you. We'll see if I can find it. We got a very nice, awkward photo of Too Tall. Um, people are in general unable to take good photos. Uh, they're definitely unable to take good photos of tall people. <laughs> when two tall people are awkwardly posing together, it just makes for a delightful photo. So I put that one on my Instagram. But he's a very nice guy. Good, good guy. Yeah, I enjoyed talking to him. We enjoyed having him on for sure. Yeah, he was he was absolutely amazing. Um, what are you up to these days? Yeah. So now uh, we live in Richmond, Virginia. So suburban Virginia. Uh, so wife and I met in law school, and I guess we've been uh, married for what fourteen years or so now. Uh, got two girls, ten and seven. Older one's going to be super tall, uh, kind of like me. Hopefully she'll be a better athlete than me, but honestly, whatever she wants to do is fine. Uh, but I'm now an attorney with Capital One. Uh, so I do, won't bore you with it, but uh, think uh, all the Capital One commercials you'd see during the uh, NCAA tournament, I've got a hand in those. So I've been with uh, Capital One for a couple of years now. So I'm you know, working for the man is what I do. <laughs> you know, I want to I ask this question to you, especially for the younger listeners, um, the listeners that are playing, you know, grade school ball or high school ball. Um, and I think this is important because I think sports is important personally. Um, what do you think your basketball career did for you in life? So mm-hmm. what, what are the lessons that you learned on the court um, that translated to your, you know, your professional and your personal life? Yeah. Uh, so I think my career to a certain extent, uh, how you bounce back from losses, which I have taken far more than any person should take, but how you, how you bounce back from that, I think is uh, really the most important thing that sports ends up teaching you. Um, it, listen, the life is just this wonderful tapestry as they say, right? And, but every day something is going to happen uh, and it's going to frustrate you and things aren't going to go the way uh, aren't going to go the way that you want them to go. And so it's going to be how you, how you bounce back from those. I also had the opportunity to, listen, I started in Los Angeles, ended up in San Jose to Juco, and then I ended up going to, you know, the deep South to play with a whole different group of people. So how you can um, work with people, I also think is just incredibly important. Uh, so one of the things, you, you know, so you're, you're forced onto a team, right? So like you've got, uh, you've got to make friends with some of these people. Oftentimes that's going to be the same way it is in your life. Uh, you know, hopefully you're going to like the people you work with, but you're not going to love every one of them. Uh, and it, it, hopefully you're also not going to be competing with them in the same way. Like basketball to a certain extent is a zero sum game, right? Only five people can be on the court at a time. Um, hopefully in you know whatever life path you go down, everyone's working towards a common goal at a particular job. And, you know, whether it's trying to sell bank or trying to sell credit cards as we do at Capital One or, you know, whatever, teaching kids, hopefully, uh, you know, everyone's going to be working in the same direction. Um, But how you can, uh, how you can mesh with people. uh, And I think the teamwork for me, that was incredibly valuable. Uh, I enjoy being around people. Uh, I've probably talked far too much on this thing, but, uh, you know, I enjoy having, having the opportunity to interact with different people. And I think that is a really valuable lesson. I mean, it was a suburban kid from LA and, you know, having the opportunity to work with, you know, know kids coming from very different backgrounds in the deep South. It's pretty awesome. Um, I mean, you get an opportunity to really understand or try to understand how other people behave. 
Yeah, I think that's a great answer. Uh, music for me has been the same way in terms of <laughs> different cultures and whatnot. And I think, uh, you know, somebody said that, you know, you really learn about yourself when you travel and you, and yep. you, especially traveling the world and seeing how, how everybody interacts with each other. And I, I think basketball is one of those languages where a lot of guys we talk to when they play overseas, they don't, you know, there's a language barrier, but there isn't really one in basketball. You know what I mean? Yep. So I really appreciate that, that answer for sure. We're going to do a quick lightning round with you. If you don't mind, Zach's going to answer, ask you the questions. It's just a one or two word answer thing. Zach, are you ready to ask the questions? For sure. Uh, my first question is, who's your idol? The guy that you tried to play or act like or be like? It's almost embarrassing to say, but it was Christian Leitner. Again, tall white guy growing up in the early 90s. I am sorry. Like, go for it, Christian. But that, that was my idol when I was a kid. <laughs> no, I, lo I love Leitner. I love Leitner. That's a good answer. Um, I got to ask, from that 1-26 in season, out of all the butt kickings, which is the one that comes to mind? Like, what was that worst one that comes to mind? <laughs> It was both the best and the worst, but it was Arizona State. Uh, strangely, after the game, uh, there were a handful of Cal Poly Slow alums who were there. We were signing autographs after getting our asses kicked by 55 points against Arizona State. So that, that one, we always chuckle about that. <laughs> That's too good. That's too good. Uh, you spent a lot of time in the danger zone. You know, you had to be a rim protector at times. So what's the worst memory that you have of getting dunked on? Like, what would that, oh, one I that comes to mind? I spin it the other way, but it was the best memory. Uh, again, going back to the one in 2016, we're playing against the University of Portland. I'm sorry, it's not a two-word answer. Playing against the University of Portland, uh, they had a wing guy named Kanan Chapman. He was a good player, a uh, very good player. And we're getting our asses kicked. And I am back under the basket, and somehow they get a steal. And again, like, who knows how it actually happened, but this is how I remember it in my head. They get the steal, and he's coming down the court. And I remember I said, fuck it. I'm just going to jump up and I'm just going to deck this guy. I'm going I'm to take up my frustration. <laughs> so I jump, he jumps, he keeps going up. He smacks it in my face, right? I mean, knocks me to the ground. And for whatever reason, there happened to be a camera there that then zooped right in on me as I'm laying on the ground. So that, that was definitely the worst dunk on that I, that I ever took. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, who is your personal toughest cover? The one guy you just couldn't figure out how to guard? Oh, well, I mean, it's Elton Brand, no question. I mean, he, he was the best player we ever played against. There were, uh, between his footwork uh, and, I mean, just the way he was able to control his body. Listen, the best I could have done against him might have been not fouling out, uh, but it, it, it was over. Uh, like, he, he did anything he wanted against me. Yeah, well, you were three for three against him, so you might have been his but, tough, tough I like it. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we'll have to get him on the show and ask, so we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll see. But uh, any weird superstitions that you or a teammate had that come to mind? Ooh, I so man, that's a good one. Uh, I had a particular way in uh, putting on my well, putting on socks and shoes. Uh, so always left foot, uh, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. Um, and it, growing up in LA, this is the old you probably got the John Wooden story a hundred times already, right? About how he teaches people to put on the shoes and socks. Uh, so I abided by that. But there were plenty of guys who did the uh, nail clipping, uh, a lot of hair cutting before games. That, that, was a, that was a big one for a lot of the guys on my team, too. Yeah. And uh, who's the best player at any level that you played at? AU, high school, college. Who's the best player that you saw? The one guy that just really wowed you? Oh, or, that's another or played good with. Oh, that's another good one. I will say, uh, so strangely, one of my uh, law school classmates who uh, has now become a politician, uh, but he was the best shooter that I was ever on the court with, again, named Alexi Janoulias, uh, just one of these un uh, unbelievable shooters. As far as the best 
player that I ever played against. I definitely thought it was going to be Rick Price, uh, but he ended up uh, he ended up flaming out, and that just shows how our high school memories are so uh, are so utterly skewed on things. Um, because yeah, I'd say Carlos Arroyo may well have had the longest NBA career of any of the guys that I that I played against, and he was not the one who stood out. Oh yeah. no, Andre Miller. Price, what am I saying? We talked about him for like 10 minutes. Andre was the best player that I ever played with. It's not even close. <laughs> All right. My final one to you is what's your favorite basketball memory if you had to pick just one? Like what's that one memory that will always stay with you? Oh, man. It's loaded the question. I know. Lightning round's not easy. You know, yeah, unfortunately, uh, trying to – I mean, it's going to be the dunk against Kentucky. Um it, there are just so many things. And again, as I was prepping for going through this, just the memories that kind of come flooding back uh, as I look through it, you know, it, it was just an awesome run. But yeah, the dunk against Kentucky was definitely the best one. So cu- coming back off of uh, off the ACL, that was the most special points that I ever scored. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great answer. Anything you want to add or promote? Oh, God, I wish. Uh, yeah, one of these days, maybe I'll follow in y'all's footsteps and uh, do a podcast. Uh, but no, hey, I am, uh, you know, go out, uh, if you've got a bank that you want to choose, rewind a little bit and you can, uh, you can see which one I would endorse. Um, but no, I'm just, you know, Hoops fan who's happy to be able to spend a little bit of time with y'all. That was really a lot of fun. I really enjoyed talking to you today. Um, there was a lot of really cool stories you gave us. And I really want to thank you for reaching out to us, too. Um, it's, uh, it's really an honor to have you on and, and, and tell your story. Um, Zach, is there anything you want to add before we let Chris out of here? Yeah, I just want to say thanks, man. When I got that email, it just uh, it really made us feel good and made us feel like we're doing something right. So I really appreciated the email, but I also really appreciate your stories. And I mean, honestly, it's one of my favorite ones just because we get to hear about all the NBA players and, you know, the, yeah. the people that get all the glamour and the fame. But rarely do we get to hear from, you know, the role players in college. And I think that's an important uh important lessons from your story that the younger listeners can really take to heart and really relate to. So I just really appreciate you. Well, thank you. Yeah. It ends up being most of us, you know, most of us are just cogs in the wheel. Uh, very few of us get to be the stars, but it's, uh, yeah, it, it, it was a fun time. It's been, uh, it's been real. Man, I really appreciate you all taking the time and thank you for the pod that you're doing. I'm blown away by the guests you've gotten. I uh, really, really look forward to what else y'all are going to do. I appreciate that. And thanks for your time today. You're very gracious with it. Have a great 4th of July, great weekend. And, uh, We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Y'all have a great time. Bye. Take care. Thanks. Bye. That was a lot of fun, man. A lot of really cool stories. You know, the thing that I enjoyed was he had a really good sense of humor and um, he was very light about everything, which I thought was cool. You know what I mean? And it, and it, yeah. it gives our listeners, especially our younger listeners, I think a good perspective, um, especially a guy like him. You know, he's he's seven feet tall, 6'11", right? And there's always the big joke, like 6'11", white guy, is always going to find a place on the bench, you know, on some team, right? You know, both of us are like 6'1", 6'2", 6'3", and we never hit that growth spurt, unfortunately. But I like that, you know, he talked about getting to see the country, you know, playing with different players, talked about, you know, him becoming a lawyer working for Capital One now. I mean, there's a lot of things that you can get from basketball. And the biggest thing is, like you said, those hundred games, right. You know, whether you don't, whether you get them in high school or you get them in college or you even get to the pros or, you know, Europe or the TBT, you know, you really got to enjoy every game you play, man. And, and to hear that they were one in 26 and he still talks to a lot of those guys on the team and they still were like, you know, jumping all over the place, you know, diving for basketballs that shows, you know, 
that shows a lot of pride. And I think that stuff, that's why I asked him that question later in the pod is, you know, it, it shows what sports can do for you in life in general. And I think the lessons that you learn playing sports definitely translate onto you being successful and uh, handling adversity for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's a thing where young kids at the high school, middle school level, even the college level, even the pros, like they struggle when they go through a really rough losing season like that. And I think the thing that really stood out is when he said, we just really wanted to play. And I mean, that showed me one thing. It's that they respected each other and they played for each other and with each other, which is something that you always have to do no matter what the record is. You can't worry about the record because you always have to think about the future. You always have to think about, all right, what am I learning from this game that's going to help me in the next one? Or what am I learning from this practice that's going to help me later on? And I mean, that's the thing. Just every day you got to keep building to be better. And I think that whole Cal Poly team, I mean, I, I feel like it sounds like those guys at the end of the season stayed true to that. And I just respect that a lot. Yeah, you know, the thing that's, I think, especially for our younger listeners, and this kind of goes with anything in life, it's like, you know, respect where you are. You know what I mean? Like, think about it this way, as crazy as this sounds, like, you know, your high school team you coach, right? They're all on your team, right? Michael right. Jordan got cut from his high school team, yeah. right? To even be on a high school team is an accomplishment. And then it's just what you do with it, how hard you work. You know, there's a lot of variables. Do you stay healthy? You know, do you end up getting an injury? But to even be able to play the game, like, you know, still at our ages, we still can play the game and, you know, those type of things and watch guys that are younger than us or guys that are a little, you know, older than us still playing the game, you know, playing pickup. I mean, you know, why do you wake up at 5.30 in the morning and play pickup ball? Because it's fun to be able to still play basketball. You know, it's, it's being grateful for the opportunities you have, just like how we're grateful for – Everybody listening to the show, Canada's back in the mix. We charted in Canada for about five days this week, which is awesome. So thank you, Canadians. We appreciate you listening to the show. And let us know what uh, guests from Canada we need to get on. I, I wouldn't mind having R.J. Barrett on. That would be pretty rad. Ooh, I got um, a couple Canadians in the works. Don't you worry. I got a couple. Nice, in the works. nice, nice. Yes. And, and uh, just thanks, everybody, for doing, you know, I mean, a guy, you know, a guy like Chris finds out about us because of Paul Shirley and listens, you know, listens to the Chris Heron episode and, and, and wants to come on the show. I mean, you know, when we started this pod about a year and a half ago. I don't think we ever dreamed about getting people like Oscar Schmidt and Dino Raja and, you know, uh, the, you know, a lot of these guys. I mean, it's uh, I mean, dude, Chris Heron had a 30 for 30. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and, and it's just I don't know. It's just. It's mind-boggling. So and we Jeff Fryer, Jeff Fryer is in that thirty for thirty. Got him too. Yeah, absolutely. Hank Gathers one. Anything you want to add before we get out of here? Just big thanks to Chris, and uh, really enjoyed talking to him. And I just want to thank the fans, you know. And I mean, Chris is a fan too. Reached out to us, really appreciate it, and we just appreciate all of you uh, helping us get to where we are, and uh, a lot more to come. Stay tuned. Absolutely, everybody, stay safe out there, man. Be smart. Be good to each other. We really need to be doing that, and. Uh, Thanks for listening to the show and hopefully you subscribe if you haven't already. Peace out.